Good evening. My name is Becky Castle Miller. Tonight we're looking at 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16. Now I have a master's degree in New Testament. I've written a published article on verse three in our passage tonight. I've studied the context of Corinth in Corinth. I've been studying this passage for weeks to prepare for the sermon, but I can't tell you what it means. Scholars disagree wildly about this passage, what it means, how to interpret it, how to apply it today. They argue about how to translate words, which cultural concepts are at play here, what's going on in the situation. Now, the one thing that pretty much everyone agrees on is that this is a hard passage to understand. Alan Johnson said, it's multiple exegetical problems seem unparalleled. There are no fewer than 22 crucial debatable issues related to the meaning of the passage. My honest consensus, he says, is that there is no consensus. Craig Blomberg writes, this passage is probably the most complex, controversial, and opaque of any text of comparable length in the New Testament. Lucy Pepiot said that this is genuinely one of the most difficult biblical passages to understand. N.T. Wright says, this is the most difficult set of verses in the whole Bible. Now, why am I telling you all of that? I'm not trying to scare you off, I promise. I love how Alan Johnson puts it. He says, we should never pretend to understand more than we do. And Lucy Pepiot gives us some ideas for how do we interpret and discern scripture. She said, we scholars construct scenarios to make sense of the text, but they're highly speculative. We put a lot of guesswork into them. And she says, honestly, this is true of my own reconstruction as well. She suggests that we be discerning, that we listen to our tradition and our community, that we read all sides of an argument and that we have spirit-led intuition when trying to understand and apply the Bible. She says that in this passage, we don't have easy answers on a plate and we have quite a task ahead of us trying to make sense of this passage, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try, end quote. So tonight I invite you to the hard, but absolutely worthwhile work of biblical interpretation. I really hope this doesn't scare you off or make you wanna tune out, but I hope that the challenge of this passage makes you curious and excited. And uh, maybe before we dig in, um, before I prophesy and speak God's words to God's people, I guess I should, um, maybe I should cover my head. Now this passage has been misused quite a lot throughout history. It's been interpreted to force women to wear literal head coverings in their churches and sometimes in daily life as well, including some of my friends. I had a friend when I was growing up who wore like a lace doily on her head all the time. My friend Jen was just telling me today that she served at a church camp when she was a teenager and she had to wear a head covering. And she really wrestled with this passage as she was trying to figure out, because it was different from her tradition. And she was trying to figure out how to apply it, how to live it out and how to be in this context where she was expected to cover her head. It's been misused to hold authority over women and to force women into submission to men, both male church leaders and husbands. It's been weirdly twisted to 
make women have to have some kind of metaphorical covering to speak in some churches. Like, okay, maybe we'll let a woman preach, but she has to have a covering, like a husband or a pastor on the platform that gives her permission to speak. So that's our, those are some ways it's been misused. How can we try to understand it and use it correctly to help us live faithful lives as Christians today? as we continue the series on questions when reading 1 Corinthians. Now, as far as what it means for us today, here's a spoiler so you can relax. I'm not gonna tell you to wear something on your head next week when we gather for worship in person together. Or am I? So we're gonna look at some of the major issues in this passage, not all of them, there are at least 22, we're going to look at a few. And I will give you a few of the interpretive options for each of these issues. And then we'll try to figure out what it might mean, what was actually going on in this scenario. And what does it mean for our lives today? Because it seems so detached from our culture, our context and our daily lives. So the culture of, con of the context of Corinth and the culture there. Corinth was a city that was obsessed with honor and status. Corinth was a city full of new rich people because the city was so prosperous that many people were gaining in status. So people were very consumed with their social status. There is a path that leads up the hill into Corinth that is lined with plinths for statues. And so if you made it on the cursus honorum and you were honored with a statue maybe because of business success or being a patron of the arts or being a government leader or a military victor, then you might get a statue on the way into Corinth. Now, if you fell out of favor because there were so many people they had to honor, maybe they would scrape the face off the statue and sculpt someone else's face on it when that person rose in status. Another thing to keep in mind is that Paul's friend Priscilla was there was a teacher in the church in Corinth. And so perhaps Priscilla is even one of the women who's under discussion in this passage. And maybe even Phoebe, who's mentioned in the letter to the Romans, uh, Phoebe carried the letter to Rome and Phoebe lived just down the road from Corinth in the little seaside town of Cancrea where she was a deacon in the church. So I like to think about our sisters Priscilla and Phoebe maybe being involved in this conversation, that maybe it wasn't just about unnamed women we don't know about, but maybe we're actually talking about women that we hear about in the New Testament who were honored leaders in the early church. So what's going on here? Who is the problem? Are the women the problem? Are men the problem? Is everybody the problem? Who is Paul mad at? Is Paul mad at anybody? Are people mad at Paul? What's going on? Why are we having this argument and this discussion about veiling and unveiling being covered and uncovered in worship. So the first issue we're gonna look at is the word head. Now the word here, kephale, can mean a literal head, like the thing on top of your neck, the head of your body. It can mean a lot of other things as well. And Paul seems to be doing a lot of wordplay here. One thing that the scholars generally agree on is that there is wordplay going on, that he's using both literal and figurative meanings for the word head. And so it's poetic and it's literary. So you would cover or uncover your head, your physical head, so that you don't shame your metaphorical head, whatever that might mean. So while it can mean head, kephale can also mean 
authority in the sense of a head of a company. We might translate it in English, but it can also mean like the head of a river, the source of something, the life source of something. It can mean the preeminent one, one who stands before. In English, we might say maybe head of the class. And it can also mean first principle, that from which something else is derived. And it can have a connotation of unity and interdependence because your head can't exist without your body and your body can't exist without your head. So maybe there's unity going on here. So verse three could be translated many different ways depending on which meaning of the word we have here. And we just don't know enough to know exactly what Paul meant here. So one possible paraphrase that kind of makes sense of it, this, these linked pairs could be something like the life-giving source of every human is Christ. The life-giving source of the first woman was the first man and the life-giving source of Christ incarnated is God. But that's just one option. There are many different options. And does it mean the same thing in each one of those pairs or does it mean something different? And is there more wordplay than we even know because we're too far removed from Paul's linguistic context? We don't know. If you don't have your Bibles open, you might want to open them or scroll back up in the order of worship so that you can follow along with the passage and see these particular verses as we discuss them and go from one question to the next. So let's talk about authority. Is there something about authority in this passage? It's been misused that way. Is that fair, a fair reading of the text? I think that we, as modern Americans, read authority into this passage that isn't fair in the way that it's used to say that men have authority over women or husbands have authority over wives. That's probably not the sense of kefale that Paul is using in the opening here. Now, Paul could have said arche if he wanted to talk about ruling over, but he doesn't use that word. The only place authority is actually in this passage is when he talks about the woman having authority on her head or over her head. That's exousia, and that's further down in the passage. And we'll talk more about that on or over in a second. Kenneth Bailey says that maybe we can understand this authority, sign of authority on her head as a queen's crown. She has the authority to proclaim, which is what prophesying in the assembly is. So it's hard to understand what authority is, but I don't think it means authority of men over women. Now, another issue here is, are we talking about a hat, a veil, hair, hair down, hair up, long hair, a certain hairstyle? No one knows. There's no conformity in the archaeological evidence, Craig Keener says, to know about what was going on with veiling men or women in public, in worship. He says that hair could have been seen as an object of lust, as an object of attraction, and so honorable women covered their hair to show their honor, their modesty, their propriety. He says that hair covering prevailed in Jewish Palestine for married women. And in fact, not veiling would get you in serious trouble. Um, it could have been a class issue. Rich women didn't wanna cover their fancy hair. And Paul talks in other places about Christian women letting their beauty not be in their fancy braided hair or hair ornaments. So is it about fancy hair? Now Greeks uncovered their hair for worship. Romans covered their hair for worship. Corinth had both. The practice wasn't necessarily gendered. 
So we don't really know what's going on here. There was too much mixing in the house churches, which is the beauty of the house churches, that it was Jew and Gentile, Greek and Roman, all these cultures, all these social statuses, free and slave, men and women mixing together. So it's really hard to say what custom was going on here. And we also don't know if the women wanted the veils or not. Was this a case of women wanting to veil and men not letting them? Or was this a case of women not wanting to veil and men forcing them? It's really hard to discern that from just the words on the page. Now, because Corinth was a place that was consumed with honor and shame and people fitting in to gain status, maybe it was an issue of honoring their context you know, wanting to be culturally relevant to the place that they were living. Honor and shame in public worship is something that Paul's talking about in this passage. So was the issue that women were acting in a shameful way? Were they uncovering themselves to advertise their sexual availability? And Paul's saying that's not appropriate in a worship service. That's probably more an issue in Ephesus than here, but we don't know. Are women advertising their unmarried status? Is it breaching some kind of cultural norm? So we can think about what brings God honor in worship. What does orderly worship look like? If you read from chapter 10 and then you read on in chapter 11 is a bigger context of orderly worship practices and honoring other people, caring for the poor, not being in competition. So if we look at the bigger context, maybe this is about honorable and orderly worship. And what might that look like in our culture today? What would bring God honor or what would bring God shame and what would bring shame on the church? One possible application for our lives today is about limiting women in using their spiritual gifts in the church. Because our culture has gotten much more egalitarian and supports women in leadership roles in politics and business, when the church limits women and keeps them from using your gifts, maybe this is a form of shame. It shames the church and it shames God. It makes God look bad when the church limits women. So maybe that's a way that we can apply this honor-shame dynamic. We want to have orderly worship that honors God, and I think that includes letting women use their spiritual gifts, encouraging women to use their spiritual gifts. Now, what do we do about the angels? The angels are the weirdest part of this passage. No one knows what to make sense of this. It, it, it's not a reference to anything that anyone knows about. It could have been angels who lusted after women, and so women needed to keep themselves covered. It could have been about angels judging people or people judging angels. As far as angels judging people, Morna Hooker says that the authority for the created order was delegated to angels who observed worship. We see that in Revelation 2 and 3, where the letters were written to the angel of the church in Laodicea, etc. So, of course, she says these angels cared about orderly worship. Or maybe it was about people judging angels. Just a few chapters before, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, Paul says that people should practice using good judgment now because do you not know that we are to judge angels? So maybe this has to do with women being discerning in worship now because they're preparing to judge angels in the future. Who knows? Now, another interpretive option, which comes from the IVP Women's Commentary, and this is my favorite, that word angeloi, it means messengers. So it could mean heavenly creatures as we typically translate it in the Bible. But what if it actually means messengers? What if it means human tattletales or busybodies who are sitting in the church 
and are taking note of what's going on and people are asking, acting shamefully. And so they wanna run and tell. If you've ever read Anne of Green Gables or seen the mini series about Anne, you're familiar with a character named Rachel Lind, who is the town gossip. She likes to sip the tea and spill the tea. As the kids say, my kids are probably really groaning that I just said that right now. Um, Mom, you're not cool, stop trying to be cool. So Rachel Lind is a busybody, she's a gossip, she's a tattletale, and maybe that's what's going on with these messengers. Maybe that's why people needed to be honorable in worship because they didn't want to get tackled on. I don't know. I want it to be that one because that just really, really amuses me. Okay, what about this theme of unity and interdependence that's going on? I think this is a real interpretive key to this passage because instead of competition, men being over women or women trying to fight back and take their rights, maybe this is about interdependence. Paul talks about, yes, the first woman was taken from the first man, but every man after that has come from a woman, has been born of a woman, and everything comes from God. We are for each other. We are from each other. All of it comes from God. There's interdependence and sharing and unity here. Kenneth Bailey says that Paul here is countering the Corinthian appeal to creation to subjugate women. They were saying, well, in the creation narrative, man was created first, so we're going to subjugate women because men are first and better. And instead, Paul is talking about the rightness of both women and men leading together because men and women are clearly both prophesying in the services. So I think that unity, interdependence, peace, and harmony are really important to understanding this passage. So those are some of the interpretive issues. And there are many different scenarios that we can imagine for what might be going on here. And I'm just going to tell you two of them. I want to contrast Lucy Pepiot and Cynthia Westfall with two of their views. Now, the interesting thing is that both of these amazing female scholars have very different views of this passage, but they both think men are the problem. They both have the view that, wait a second, this has so often been interpreted that the women were the problem in this passage, but maybe that's not what Paul's saying at all. Maybe the men are the problem and that's who he's correcting here. So for Westfall, women want to veil and men want to control them and won't let them. For Pepiat, women don't want to veil and men want to compel them. In both cases, the bottom line is that Paul is honoring and freeing women to make their own decisions and practice their gifts in ways that are authentic to them. So according to Cynthia Westfall, all the words in this passage are Paul's. Paul was elevating women against cultural norms. He was saying that dishonorable women in culture are honorable in God's kingdom. This leveled the classes. It leveled slave and free. Unmarried and slave women who were not allowed to veil, according to the Roman customs and laws, would be allowed to veil in the church, like the married women. So Westfall thinks that the women wanted to veil. They wanted to be all seen as, as honorable, equal women. But the men wanted to strip them of their veils against their wishes. Men wanted them maybe to be sex objects. They wanted to maybe know who was sexually available and who they could take advantage of. Like slaves were often taken advantage of in the Roman Empire and used. Maybe this was to keep class distinctions. It's unclear, but Cynthia uh, Westfall thinks that Paul is saying that women are allowed to have this sign on their heads, so you can't stop them. They wanna be honorable women and you have to let them. 
Now, Lucy Pepiat thinks that this is an issue of Paul and quotation marks. I had dinner with some friends the other night and I asked them if you could, in the new creation, pick a fight with any character in the Bible, who would it be and why? And my choice is Paul. I would love to go back in time if I had a time. Like some people would want to like stop Hitler. Some people would want to stop, you know, save people from Pompeii. I would want to teach Paul quotation marks and other punctuation because the, the New Testament manuscripts don't have them. And so we don't know when he's quoting someone or when he's using his own words. There's this back and forth, which could be Paul being two-faced and can't make up his mind, or it could be an actual argument that he records in his letter. So Pepiat falls strongly on the side that it's an argument with the Corinthians, that the dialogue goes back and forth. And that the problematic words like woman is the glory of man or woman is the reflection of man are from his opponents and Paul's opposing them. He's correcting them. She says, Paul was faced with a group of spiritually gifted and highly articulate male teachers who were overbearing and divisive men who had implemented oppressive practices for women in Paul's absence, end quote. She thinks they want women to veil and Paul says they don't have to. They have their hair that God gave them. They are enough just as they are. They don't have to become what you want or conform in any way. God created them already with a covering. Their hair as God created them is enough. Lucy Pepiat says, this is too convoluted and too conflicted a text to prove anything. And we should be able to admit this. So certainly anyone who says that this passage proves that women must be under men's authority or women should wear head coverings or women need a metaphorical spiritual covering to use their gifts. The passage really can't prove that. Can't prove a whole lot else either, but don't let it use, don't let anyone use this to limit you in the church. I do not believe that this passage means male authority over women. Pepiat says, Paul begins and ends his section on public worship by addressing the oppression, suppression and silencing of women and coming out as strongly as possible against it, end quote. I do not believe it means literal head coverings. I don't think that we need to wear hats or veils or mantillas or anything when we come to worship together next weekend. Whatever else it means, I do believe it means women are free to use their gifts in the church. And so are men. We need each other. We are interdependent. We are unified. We are honoring God and each other. Alan Johnson says that this is about men and women leading together while maintaining cultural propriety and respect and honor. And Kenneth Bailey says what Paul is saying here is basically, please don't fight over a problem that has an easy solution. Be sensitive to cultural setting, love harmony, don't be contentious. Honor each other and stop fighting and stop compelling each other to do things. But what does this random argument have to do with our real life struggles? Lucy Pepiat says, most ordinary men and women who simply want to understand what the Bible means for them in everyday life basically end up ignoring this passage, end quote. And I love a good esoteric Bible argument that's detached from reality and is a thought exercise. I love digging into the minutia of scholarship. I love laying out 10 commentaries in front of me and seeing what scholars have said and debated about this. And I've been doing that for the last few weeks as I prepared. And this week has been really hard for our family. And all of that debate fell really flat for me all of a sudden. One of our two cats died suddenly on Wednesday. Um, we had had him since he was a kitten 13 years ago. My other cat, Bugaboo, 
is sitting has been sitting with me this whole time. Um, but his half brother, our cat bungalow, died, and our family has been grieving and trying to process our uncomfortable emotions. And we've had tough conversations about bodies and death and the realization that we will die someday too, and funerals and burials. And, and suddenly the last few days I've been thinking, what does this passage have to say to that? What is the point? How does this dry, confusing passage speak to our real life pain and struggles? But as I thought about gifts in this passage, praying and prophesying and other gifts used in the assembly, I thought about my friends. Um, I thought about the night I was sitting at midnight in the emergency vet parking lot and my friend Lacey, who's a pastor, was texting me and praying for me and pastoring me. I thought about my best friend Gwen answering my call from a dead sleep to talk me through these decisions we were having to make. She has a Bengal who looks just like Bungalow. Um, and, and she listened to me. I think about my friend Jen sending books, a package of books for my kids. She has lost a child. She knows grief very well. And so she picked out some books that she loved that would help us process. I think about my friend Kathleen, who's a children's book author, who wrote a little story about bungalow that I could share with my kids. Um, I think about Shelly and Gail here at Savior from my small group who prayed for me today. I think about Kevin and Karen who, when they get back from their trip, have offered to come over and do a funeral for the cat with us who's buried in our backyard. Um, I think about my daughter's friend, Daria, in the Netherlands. She called her friend and it, her friend was so empathetic and I loved hearing part of their conversation and hearing nine-year-olds navigate these awkward conversations of grief and empathy and support. And these were all expressions of gifts that people have that are unique and different. And each person cared in their own way. They didn't have to perform or fill a role that they, they weren't qualified for. They just served with their own unique gifts. And I think this is what this passage means. I don't know what else it means, but I think that it does mean this. It means that women were praying and prophesying and men were praying and prophesying. And Paul defends everyone's right and even need to use their gifts in the church. We all need to pray and prophesy, use all the gifts the spirit has given us in the power the spirit has given us. And we have a chance to sign up and do that in person as we, as we go back in person this week. And Sarah's gonna share more about that in the announcements. There are so many ways that we can use our gifts to serve each other. I love dinner parties and hospitality. And one of my favorite things is setting the table, setting a fancy table. So I've actually signed up for the altar team. I've never done it before. We've only been Anglican during the pandemic. This is a new thing for our family. And, and so I want to use my gifts to, to, to lay the table for our church. We all have, I think Paul's saying, authority over our own heads, not a sign someone else puts on us, not forced or compelled to serve, not pressed to perform in any particular way. So I think one way we can apply this passage is to use our gifts, use your gifts in your own unique way, true to who you are, with authority over your own head and your own decisions. I love that Savior is healthy about this. You're never compelled to serve. In fact, they invite you to stop serving if that's the healthiest thing for you. I love that. I think that's a reflection of this passage. So use your gifts to honor God and to honor your neighbor. Amen.